Good afternoon, Lord Lieutenants, Lords, Ladies and Gentlemen, Vice-Chancellor. It's a great honor to be able to introduce Lord Tugendhat, our Chancellor, today. The University Treasurer has spoken of his time as Chancellor and the support he has given us. Perhaps I may add to this and show you how well-placed he is to speak to us this afternoon. Christopher was educated at Keyes College, Cambridge, and worked first for the Financial Times, covering energy, before becoming a Member of Parliament for Westminster in the City of London. He was a member of the European Commission and later Vice President of the Commission, so he knows about state power and how it works nationally and supranationally. Thereafter, he became Chairman of the Civil Aviation Authority, as well as Abbey National and Blue Circle. Of his other appointments, perhaps being Chairman of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, or Chatham House as we would know it, in common parlance, is the most relevant for this afternoon. So a serious man who has both contributed to our country's life here and abroad for many years and is and continues to be a shrewd observer of public life. Knighted in 1991, ennobled in 1993, he is an active member of the House of Lords where he speaks on economic and financial matters. Few know that he survived an assassination attempt in Brussels on his life by the IRA. We are lucky they missed, for he has been the most diligent of chancellors. Appointed in 1998, he rarely misses a council meeting when he does not speak and endures our discussions stoically. <laughs> his attendance at degree days has been exemplary. He has given us real active support, particularly to the philanthropic side of the university, which is now bearing fruit, which would have been a very good slide to put up um, in the Vice-Chancellor's presentation. We are keen to hear what you have to say on this most topical and important subject. Lord Tugendhat. <coughs> well, Lord Lieutenants, Mayors, Vice-Chancellor, ladies and gentlemen, and Peter, thank you very much for that. <laughs> For that introduction. As I'm sure you will all understand, the preparation of this lecture has cast a shadow over my life almost from the moment that the Vice-Chancellor did me the honour of inviting me to give it. I've been acutely aware that each of my two predecessors at this podium was president of the Royal Society at the time of delivery, and that sets a very high bar. Another factor has weighed even more heavily on my mind, it is that this lecture is my valedictory after 14 years holding an office of which I'm immensely proud and that continues to give me very great pleasure. I still have a number of duties to fulfill and look forward to them with eager anticipation. But this lecture occupies much the same position in my chancellorship as does an autobiography in the lives of those who write them. There is more to come but it is in the nature of an afterword or an appendix. The only aspect of the preparation with which I have had no difficulty is my choice of subject. At a very early stage, I decided that of those I might be qualified to speak on, the issue of trust in public life and business, what's gone wrong and what to do about it, is by far the most important. We British pride ourselves on the ethical standards of our public life and business. 
We like to believe that we set a benchmark for others. The whole nation, therefore, has been shocked by the rash of crises that has hit so many of our great institutions. Parliament, government, the press, the police, the BBC, banks and lending uh, uh, and leading companies have all in one way or another been scarred and are grappling with the consequences. Each has its own characteristics. Some have involved criminality, but most not. All, however, have given the public ample cause to feel that the behaviour of those involved has fallen well short of what we have a right to expect. Institutional and personal reputations have suffered. Confidence in the probity of our public life and business has been diminished and the lives of some of our fellow citizens has been damaged. In this lecture, I won't cover everything that has happened. It would be too much. Rather, I shall confine myself to those fields where I have some first-hand experience. Since I started my first job in 1960, and Peter's already gone over this, I've been a journalist, a politician, and a regulator. I've chaired a British bank and been involved with the US Investment Bank. I've chaired a FTSE 100 industrial company and been a director of several other major companies. It is, therefore, on the scandals and issues that have arisen in these spheres that I shall concentrate. This still provides, I'm afraid, a substantial agenda. I shall deal first with MPs' expenses, then with the cat's cradle of issues involving press abuses, the power of the Murdoch organization, and the nature of that organization's relations with ministers and the police. After that, I will tackle the bankers and conclude with the explosion of top executive pay in our leading companies and some of its economic and social implications. I will discuss the origins and salient features of each of these phenomena, draw conclusions, and where I can, suggest, uh, and where I can uh, suggest remedies. I should add that like others looking back over a long career, I cannot claim that I always so, saw so clearly at the time what I see now, nor that I always thought what I think now. Before getting down to the substance of what I have to say, I think it is important to establish some historical context. To those who think we are entering a new dark age, I would point out that while there have been better and worse periods in the past, there has never been a golden age. A few examples drawn from different decades of the 20th century will, I believe, demonstrate this point. My first is the so-called Marconi scandal that occurred in the years before the First World War. Several senior ministers in our Swiss government, including the then Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Lloyd George, were found by an inquiry to have used inside information to engage in improper, though not illegal, share dealing. Today, they would lose their jobs, but they were able to remain in office. In the event, it was fortunate that they were, as Lloyd George went on to become our great war leader. After 1918, he continued in office as the liberal leader of a largely conservative coalition. As such, his political base was very short of money, a defect he sought to remedy by the sale of peerages and other honours 
through the activities of his notorious and oddly named sidekick, Maundy Gregory. After the collapse of the coalition, he never returned to high office, but this was not the reason, and there were times when he was thought to be very close to making a comeback. Those scandals were public knowledge. My next example wasn't and speaks volumes about the standards of the 1930s. When Sir Samuel Hoare became Foreign Secretary in 1935, Lady Hoare told their friend Lord Beaverbrook, who owned the Express Group of Newspapers, then a great power in the land, that they would find it hard to manage on the salary. So Beaverbrook kindly came up with a subvention. Although recent Prime Ministers and the present one as well as other senior ministers, have been far too close to the Murdochs, I can't imagine such a thing happening today. Next, a purely business example from the 1950s. As a schoolboy in austerity-hit Britain, I well remember the press coverage of Sir Bernard and Lady Docker. Sir Bernard Bernard was chairman of BSA, at that time a major company that owned Daimler Cars, In 1951, he famously presented his wife with one of its limos, covered with 7,000 gold stars and with the plating that would normally have been chrome in gold. Finally, and because of its resonance with today, I would remind you of the secondary banking crisis of the early 1970s, and Ian Hay Davison here had personal experience of that, And one enterprise to go down that is still regarded as a classic case of fraud and regulatory failure was London and County Securities, of which the then Liberal leader, Jeremy Thorpe, was a non-executive director. I'm sorry, I've grown a tumour. And so I come to MPs' expenses, which, looking back, seems to have launched the current cycle. Scandalous it it undoubtedly was. Nonetheless, it seems to me to have arisen primarily from a faulty and out-of-date regime, continuing to operate past its sell-by date in a private parliamentary world, shielded from public view, rather than from a culture of personal dishonesty, though there were cases of that. In essence... It was a matter of expenses being treated as a form of remuneration. The public was understandably shocked when the details were exposed. But that is how it was set up in the early 1970s when I was a young MP. The Wilson government hadn't wanted to accept an independent report recommending that MPs' pay should be linked to a civil service grade. So as the government chief whip, Bob Mellish famously put it at the time, don't worry, you'll get it all on expenses. Now, now that sounds appalling, and many of us warned against it at the time. But it wasn't so strange in those days. With income tax rates of up to 83%, guaranteed expenses on top of salary were a common practice. Indeed, I recall being offered a private sector job in the 1960s, before I became an MP, in which the two items were explicitly set out side by side in the offer. In the public sector, expenses were often linked not to receipts but to grade. So if you stayed in a cheaper hotel 
or travelled more cheaply than your grade entitled you to, you pocketed the difference. Such a system was still in place at the Civil Aviation Authority in 1986 when I became chairman. I got much stick within the organisation for abolishing it and insisting on reimbursements being linked to receipts and pay and expenses clearly separated. Quite apart from the intrinsic fault in combining them, the Thatcher government had sharply reduced taxes on income so that there was no justification for the practice. The pity of it is that the same wasn't done for MPs. Like Wilson, Margaret Thatcher found herself faced with an independent report recommending that MPs and ministers' salaries should be raised and put on a new basis. Instead of accepting it, the expenses system was embellished, after which it was further added to, while lax regulation enhanced its benefits. The surprising thing is that the whistle wasn't blown on it earlier. As soon as it was exposed to the light of day, it couldn't survive. Individuals who thought they had been behaving perfectly properly were exposed to public obloquy, along with those who had been gaming the system. And all, as well as Parliament itself, were brought into disrepute. I draw two conclusions from this episode. One is the critical importance of transparency. There is no more effective encouragement to the sweeping away of outdated practices and to the meticulous observance of rules relating to money than the awareness that at any moment what is happening can be checked and monitored. By that, I don't mean as a result of investigative journalism or whistleblowing. I mean that there should be an established set of criteria and reporting procedures open to public inspection on a continuous basis so that investigative journalism and whistleblowing aren't required. The second is the principle of Caesar's wife. Standards in public life today are more demanding than in the days of David Lloyd George and Sir Samuel Hall. Those in prominent and leadership positions are expected to set an example. MPs cannot expect to be treated with respect or indeed even listened to if they are thought to be on the fiddle. That, rather than the sums of money involved, which were modest by banking or even journalistic standards, is the real significance of that scandal. I now come to what I regard as the extremely serious set of issues linking contacts between senior ministers and the top team at Rupert Murdoch's News International, phone hacking, and the relationship between the Murdoch organisation and the police. Here, of course, investigative journalism, above all by The Guardian, with help from the New York Times and the BBC, played a crucial role. I pay tribute to those who, against great odds, blew open the story. And I stand in awe of the courage and perseverance of those individuals who felt they had been wronged and, despite being mocked by politicians and journalists, brought cases against their tormentors. The result has been the devastating expose of the Leveson Inquiry. Taken together and in their totality, I think this cat's cradle of issues represents something altogether new and rotten in our body politic. Phone hacking is by definition new as a result of technological advances. 
The significance of close relations between successive prime ministers and senior ministers of both major parties on the one hand and the Murdoch family and senior executives on the other is of a different order from the past because of the scale of the Murdoch empire in this country. As the advertising slogan has it, size matters. When in 1931, Stanley Baldwin, then leader of the opposition and of the Conservative Party, invade against the press barons for wanting, in his words, power without responsibility, the prerogative of the harlot through the ages, the ownership of the press was in a multitude of hands with influence correspondingly diffused. It's impossible to imagine any current party leader, whether in government or in opposition, throwing down the gauntlet in those terms. The concentration of 40% of our newspaper market, plus a strong position in satellite television in the hands of Rupert Murdoch's company, has tilted the balance away from the politicians. This was symbolised by how, when in opposition, Tony Blair went literally to the ends of the earth to make his pitch for support to a Murdoch management conference in the Antipodes. It was shown by how much more frequent were the contacts between the present Prime Minister and his immediate predecessors with the Murdoch family and executives than with those involving comparable individuals in other news organisations. Above all, it was shown by how close that dominant newspaper group came to fulfilling its ambition to become the monopoly supplier of satellite broadcasting in this country. It is against this background that close relationships at several levels were formed between Murdoch executives and journalists on the one hand and the police on the other. Details have been exposed in the Leveson Report and elsewhere. Consultancy contracts were awarded to individuals with divided loyalties, retainers were paid to senior retired officers, and expensive hospitality was lavished on senior serving officers. When the police saw what was happening at the political level, they followed suit. Beneath this canopy of interlocking connections, two things happened. One was that some of those who worked at the tabloid end of the Murdoch Empire came to believe that they weren't subject to the usual constraints of the criminal law or indeed to other normal standards of decency. I'm not suggesting that they were alone in that. Other journalists and other titles went way beyond acceptable limits as well. But they were the pioneers and major practitioners of the worst abuses. The other consequence was that the police became reluctant to pursue allegations against the Murdoch newspapers with the vigour that they should have. The Murdoch group was too powerful and too well connected to take on and there were too many bonds of various kinds between Wapping and Scotland Yard. Since Leveson reported, public attention has been primarily focused on the setting up of a successor to the discredited Press Complaints Commission. This was the right priority, the protection of private citizens against the intrusions and excesses of the tabloids and the establishment of means of redress for those who are wronged is very important. I hope that the new body 
when it finally comes into being, will fulfill the hopes reposed in it. But I want to deal with the question of competition. At the very least, the Murdoch Empire in this country must not be allowed to grow by acquisition any larger than it currently is in relation to the media market as a whole. The need to ensure that there are other viable and competitive news organisations must be kept constantly in mind by government and regulators when questions arise relating to the media, as, for instance, over the future of the BBC, B-Sky B, and other television providers. Looking further ahead, the government will, I hope, consider what should be done if, for whatever reasons, the Murdoch parent company in the United States should ever decide to dispose of some or all of its UK assets. The continuation of a 40% share of the newspaper market in the hands of a single owner should never have been permitted in the first place and is now utterly unacceptable. In my view, the maximum permissible stake should be not more than 20%, and when the opportunity arises, steps should be taken to reduce the holdings now in the hands of the news group to this level. There are those who argue that the problem of media ownership will solve itself over time, given what's happening in the electronic, in the electronic sphere and with the development of social media. The catch is that even if that is true, which I don't know, it will take a long time. Meanwhile, for as long as newspapers are important, plurality of ownership is vital, both to ensure that a diversity of views can be expressed and in order to guard against an overmighty organization gaining the sort of influence with politicians and the police that we have been witnessing. As you will have gathered, ladies and gentlemen, I regard the dominant position in the newspaper market that Rupert Murdoch was allowed to build up as the key factor behind what might be called the Leveson issues. But this in no way exonerates prime ministers and other ministers in successive governments for their demeaning relationships with the man, his family, and his top executives, a number of whom are now awaiting trial on a range of serious charges. In the nature of things, there will always be a symbiotic relationship between media and politicians in which proprietors and senior executives will become involved. That is part of how the world works. To the extent that the meetings and briefings take place on a multilateral basis involving several news outlets, I'm not worried. It is the private exchanges and relationships between ministers and shadow ministers with representatives of a single group that worry me, and it is to those that I want to bring more transparency. I accept that there will always be back channels and informal go-betweens, but to the extent that exclusive contacts, whether face-to-face or conducted in any other way, can be recorded in a manner that subjects them to public monitoring and scrutiny, so much the better. It it must be up to the party leaders in government and in opposition to convince the general public that they have credible systems in place and that their relationship with media groups is on a proper footing.
So now I turn from the world of politics and journalism to business, and initially to banking. Here, much of what has happened in Britain has been part of a wider world phenomenon, like the boom and bust to which it gave rise. But the, government, the governor of the Bank of England has said, while banks are international in life, they are national in death, and regulation must take account of this. So I will deal with the issues in a national context, while being aware of the need for remedies to fit into a coordinated European and wider international framework. What has shocked and amazed observers and customers of the banks is the combination of immense personal enrichment on the one side and the scale of corporate wrongdoing and collapse on the other. The details surrounding both are frequently complex to the point of incomprehensibility, but the results in both respects have been spectacular. Moreover, just as the story of the sun and the news of the world evolved from being about a few rogue reporters to the involvement of the most senior executives, so with the banks. Time after time it has emerged that in reality, as well as formally, the buck in terms of both financial gain and executive responsibility went right from the trading floor and the neighbourhood branch to the executive suite. What concerns me here is why it happened. Among several factors, including globalisation and advances in information technology, there is one, I believe, that stands out. It is the toxic mix of light-touch regulation with a culture of excessive financial incentives for individuals to achieve short-term profit and sales objectives. This was most apparent at the investment banking end of the business with its bonuses beyond the dreams of avarice. But it was not only there. In the high street too, and in the provision of some of their most basic services to retail customers, banks were caught up in the frenzy. What has happened is well known. In investment banking, there was an efflorescence of imaginative financial instruments and products, the effects and implications of which those who invented and promoted them, let alone their managers and regulators, failed to understand. This was combined with a reward structure designed to encourage the maximum possible use and sale of these instruments to counterparties who were all too often equally ill-equipped. What had happened in the high street was, if anything, worse. The banks came to regard their customers as sales opportunities to be exploited, rather than as individuals to whom they were providing a utility type of service. At both ends of the spectrum, there was, as with the tabloid press, a disregard of rules and of ethical standards. The actions of the tabloid journalists caused immediate damage to the lives of individuals. In the case of banking, the consequences took some time to work through the financial system and were less direct. But for many individuals and families, they have been all the more painful for that. There has been a ballooning of debt among both corporate and private clients, and the economy has been mired in a recession from which it seems unable to escape. As a result, companies have failed, jobs have been lost, mortgages have fallen into arrears, young people have been unable to launch their careers, 
and personal incomes and spending power have been sharply reduced. The effects will hang over us for a long time to come. The restoration of trust in the banking industry and in banking services will be a lengthy process, but change is moving in the right direction. Light-touch regulation has been abandoned and replaced by an altogether stricter and more intrusive regime that includes the regulator vetting non-executive directors as well as senior executive appointments. In the banks themselves, cultural change is underway as industry leaders admit to past errors and vow to turn over a new leaf. A far cry from Bob Diamond's defiant claim that the time for remorse is over. They have considerably tightened up their compliance departments and are laying a new emphasis on ethical behaviour, service and abiding by rather than gaming the rules. The crucial question of financial reward structures is also being tackled. Objectives are being altered to reinforce rather than undermine responsible business practices while bonuses are being curtailed and subject to greater, subjected to greater conditionality. In some institutions, bonuses awarded in the past are being clawed back to pay for what has since gone wrong, and current bonus pools are being raided to pay the fines being levied for the LIBOR rate fixing. All that aside, the business as well as the regulatory environment in which the banks operate is being transformed. Many thousands of bankers especially at the investment banking end of the business, have lost their jobs. For those that are left, the bonus pools are proportionately smaller and subject to more conditionality than in the past. In addition, in this country, the structure of the industry is on the verge of change. The cultures of investment and commercial banking are very different, and there are good reasons to think that within consolidated organisations, the takeover of the latter by individuals from the former has contributed to what went wrong. It would be safer if they were at arm's length from each other. The Vickers Report has advocated putting a ring fence between the two, a recommendation that has been further strengthened by the Tyree Committee of MPs and Peers, and legislation has just started its, to wend its way through Parliament. Yet I worry that we have not fully grasped the lessons of what went wrong in banking. All agree that light-touch regulation played a big role in exacerbating the problems there. Nowhere was this more true than in Britain, with ministers, Labour and Conservative, boasting in Brussels and elsewhere about how much lighter the touch was in London than in other markets. Despite that, I continue to hear the argument put forward as a general principle in relation to other industries and activities that the least regulation is generally the best. Now, of course, excessive and needless bureaucratic intervention in the market is bad, but banking isn't unique. If the interests of the consumer and public safety are not to be compromised, effective regulation is required over a wide range of goods and services. The lesson of banking is that it is very often likely to be tougher than manufacturers and suppliers would wish. A timely reminder of this has been provided by the astonishing revelations about horse meat 
masquerading as beef in this country and elsewhere in Europe. Some of the most respected food manufacturing companies and supermarket chains have had to admit that they did not know the ingredients of products bearing their names. There is no suggestion of an intention to mislead or to exploit customers, and unlike some other food scares, nobody appears to have been hurt. Nonetheless, trust in well-known brands and products has been impaired. Those politicians, business people and commentators who constantly inveigh against red tape and bureaucracy should take heed. I also ask myself whether there is a causal link between the remuneration practices in banking and the way in which, in recent years, the whole complex and multifaceted system of bonuses and performance-related pay has run out of control at the FTSE 100 end of the corporate sector. The figures speak for themselves. In 1998, according to research quoted by the Financial Times, the pay of FTSE 100 chief executives in all its various forms was 47 times that of average employees. In 2010, it was 120 times. To put it another way, according to Income Data Services last November, the total pay of FTSE 100 chief executives had risen by 266% since 2000, while the corresponding rise in the whole economy's earnings was 40%. I could go on, and figures for other senior executives show that they too have done far better than the working population at large, as well as the performance of their own companies. Not only that, Compensation for those who lose their jobs has been brought into disrepute by the scale of the generosity too often extended to those who fail to deliver outstanding performance. To a great extent, the system that has run out of control was introduced in order to align the interests of top executives more closely with those of shareholders. This was a good idea, but unfortunately the law of unintended consequences has intervened. In practice, the system has too often, too often had the effect of distorting top management's judgment in order to boost total shareholder return in the short term at the expense of the longer term and less quantifiable objectives such as innovation, training, holding on to trained staff in a downturn and the cultivation of new and difficult markets. It has also contributed to the emergence of a hyperactive market in corporate control, with the acquiring companies getting larger and larger. This in turn has led to organizational upheavals during which established management practices all too often break down and risk management procedures with them. There is another dimension too that was starkly illustrated for me by two stories that happened to appear on the same page of the Financial Times on the 6th of November last. One reported that in addition to the increases already mentioned, the median pay of FTSE 100 directors rose by 10% in 2011, or more than six times the increase in overall average earnings. The other was headlined, and I quote, Business chiefs warn against compulsion on living wage, close quotes. If ever there was a case of that old adage epitomizing poor leadership, 
don't do as I do, do as I say, being put into practice, the juxtaposition of these stories looks like it. Now let me be clear. I believe the chief executives and others who run big, complex and successful organisations of whatever kind are entitled to large rewards. I believe too that those who take on great management challenges and those who create wealth and jobs for others deserve to be generously rewarded. But the state of our society and the way in which our capitalist system is working, illustrated by these two stories, is deeply disturbing. Their juxtaposition oversimplifies a complex reality, but it also serves to remind us of the extent to which the fortunes of different groups within our society are diverging. The country needs its business leaders to speak out in the interests of their companies and of business in general. But when their pay and pay increases so far outrun those of the people who work for them and the population at large, they lose moral authority, their words will be discounted, and the business case on economic and social matters will go by default. In the days of the Brown government, my friend Lord Gavron from the Labour benches, with my support from the Conservative side, introduced a private member's bill into the House of Lords designed to curb these excesses. Both the government and the opposition opposed it, and it got nowhere. Since then, however, there has been the so-called shareholder spring, with institutional shareholders protesting against, and in some cases even voting down, excessive remuneration and compensation packages. Public opinion, too, has become engaged. This year, we had drafted another bill, but there was no need to table it. Through the Employment and Regulatory Reform Bill, currently before Parliament, the present government has taken the matter in hand with clauses that will ensure that companies can only reward directors and compensate them for loss of office with the explicit approval of shareholders. They have thereby established that there is a public interest in the matter as well as providing for much greater clarity than in the past. The responsibility for bringing this gravy trade under control will still rightly rest largely in the hands of the leaders of our great companies. But the essential element of transparency that will enable shareholders not just to monitor but also to intervene in a timely fashion is being established. So ladies and gentlemen, on that hopeful note, I come to the end of what I have to say. I have covered a diverse range of issues, but they have one important characteristic in common. It is that at the heart of some of our country's most important uh, institutions, groups of privileged individuals were able to fix outcomes to suit their own interests, regardless of the public interest, in a manner that would not have been possible if their activities had been subject to a greater degree of transparency. As a result, damage has been inflicted on the fabric of our national life and many men and women have been hurt. There is a well-known saying to the effect that the price of peace is vigilance. That is no less true for trust in our public life and business. The reason I attach so much weight to transparency is that it provides the essential precondition 
for the construction of mechanisms to enable that vigilance to be exercised effectively. I think we have time for some questions. Yes. You haven't mentioned local government, and since quite a number of your audience here are in local government, um, I heard today at another conference that something like 79, sorry, something like 79 percent of the population have trust in local government, compared with I think the figure was something like 17 percent for national government. Um, we were up there actually with Waitrose as. Uh, repository of trust and I wonder if you'd like to comment on it <laughs> well I as I said at the outset I wanted to confine myself to areas in which I had had some first-hand responsibility and I can only say I'm delighted to hear that local government is that so much confidence is reposed in local government and long may it remain so Joanna in the middle, and then there's a gentleman beneath her. <laughs> Say that advisedly. Hi, thanks. I, I was wondering if you could, uh, a fantastic talk. I was wondering if you could comment anything about uh, the, the um, liability reform and the defense bill that's been going through. Uh, Sorry, I don't hear the very well. Liability. Was it the liability uh, yes. reform? Yes, as an academic, I'm concerned about the liability reform and the issues of, of experts not being able to say what they think without being sued for, uh, for slander, which I would think also has something to do with trust. And I just wondered, I know this just went through the House of Lords, and the House of Lords has sort of turned it into a privacy issue. But, um, but as an academic, that's not my concern. So I wondered if you had an opinion on that particular bill. I think this is a bit outside... My field. I know that there is a very serious issue um, where where experts have found themselves unable to express views which one run contrary to some powerful interests. And my and I do stress I'm not a lawyer. Um, and that the government, the, the defamation bill, I think it is, is is seeking to um, seeking to remedy that and. And I think that is a very, uh, is a very good thing. And, and I, I can only say I hope that it, it gets passed quite soon. The gentleman in the really nice coloured sort of yellow tie in the middle. <laughs> well, yes. Down further, Mark. Would the, uh, would the Chancellor have any opinion on... Thank you. May I ask your opinion on the uh, recent Swiss referendum in terms of the principle of the referendum that the people can uh, vote to ensure that top management do not get uh, excessive uh, uh, remuneration? And do you think that that might uh, possibly have a knock-on effect through Europe? Well, I think it is a very interesting referendum. I mean, the thing about the Swiss is that they are used to referenda. So they do tend to vote on, on the issue before them 
rather than on whether they like the government or not and so forth, which tends to happen in, in other countries. And I, I think the overwhelming um, majority, I mean 68% or something, um, for the uh, proposition does represent pretty accurately, I would have thought, the way in which feeling is running in a great number of, of European countries. Um, and I, I think, when I say I think it will have a knock-on effect, I mean, I think that the knock-on effect was even predating the referendum. I referred to the provisions in the Employment and Regulatory Reform Bill, uh, which is at this moment going through Parliament. Well, that was introduced some months ago, and although we didn't have a referendum here, uh, it did reflect, I think, the government's view that opinion had, had changed here. I think it is important um, that we see what's happened in Switzerland and, and elsewhere, uh, because it does show that the argument that is sometimes used, um, that, well, if you go and make life difficult here, we'll go off there, um, is not quite as valid as, as some people like to, to, make it, um, to make it appear. I mean, it never was entirely valid, because even if the executive can uh, go off at the drop of a hat to some other place, his partner and his children and so forth might find the move a little more traumatic. Um, but I think, I think the, the Swiss thing is an indication of, of, of the extent to which there is widespread public concern, not, I hasten to add, with the absolute level. I mean, the Swiss were not voting against the high pay for high achievement, high pay for high responsibility, high pay for taking risks. They were voting against the way in which uh, remuneration committees and, uh, and others in these companies were, were operating. It was the process, not the result, which was the key thing. Side. It's Mike Owen, isn't he? So, back again on a similar theme to the one raised at court with respect to remuneration committees. Perhaps if, if I could just ask you a question about why pick out slightly on my concern expressed at court about the remuneration committees in general and perhaps within the university and collegiate organisations in particular, but what is your opinion with respect to the Einstein? in the sense that we've seen virtually a monotonic decline in manufacturing industries in this country since the post-war period under governments of all stripes, and we're now down, I believe, to around 10% of GDP or thereabouts in manufacturing industries, which is extremely low. And it's a similar magnitude to the GDP that we get from the banking. And thereby, I, I, I would very much like your opinion on this, but it seems to me that governments have got themselves into a very difficult position because until the economy rebalanced, if that is indeed possible, there's always this running scared of, of the banking because so much money depends upon it coming in. And the fear was that if we lose this area, then the city of London and the whole country I don't think I entirely 
I don't, we'll see. I don't think I entirely agree with the thrust of the question. And I, I think I'm right in saying that manufacturing in this country is now about 13 or 14%, which is much the same as it is in France and not out of line with what it is in many other developed countries, with, of course, the great exception of, of Germany. But, I mean, one effect of the uh, spread of the Industrial Revolution and globalization and industrialization and all the rest of it throughout the world um, is that you have people in China and India and uh, Vietnam and and now Africa, I mean, the fastest growing continent at the moment, surprisingly, but it's true, is Africa. Um, and that's a good thing. I mean, people are learning to do uh, what we did, and they're getting better lives. Now, at one time, people said, how would we manage without domestic service? I mean, millions of people were in Downton Abbey and such like places uh, before the war. I mean, literally, I mean, it was the major place in which women were employed and a great many men were employed too. And we've managed quite well without domestic service. And it was said the same of agriculture. When I went to Brussels in 1977 and you had um, something like 9 or 10% of the French uh, workforce were in agriculture, the argument was that if agriculture goes, the country won't be able to survive. I mean, one of the things which... One of the glories of capitalism is what Schumpeter called the creative destruction and that we continue to develop and move forward and we've developed a whole raft of different services. Um, I mean, it's extraordinary, but one of our big export industries now is the law. Um, when, when two Russians want to sue each other for monumental sums of money over misdeeds in Siberia. They do it in front of Mrs. Justice Gloucester in the Royal Courts of, of Justice. I mean, the, one of the geniuses of Western capitalism is our ability to develop new economic activities. Now, we have been, in, in this country, quite good at banking. I don't say very good, because what we have done is two things. We have been good at banking, and we have provided the Wimbledon in which the champions exercise themselves. I mean, the City of London is not a great British institution. It, like Wimbledon, it is a great international arena, and that is because the law and, and, uh, and the language and the whole variety of other things, for the most, of, most times, even the regulatory procedures have been, have been good. And so the City of London in its wider, I mean, it includes Edinburgh and various other places too, um, has been a major contributor to our economy, and long may that continue. But the fact that it is a major contributor to our, our economy, and the fact that I want it to continue to be so, is not a reason why certain distortions um, that, have, uh, that have appeared um, shouldn't be corrected. And they, they were not faults in the fundamental model, in my opinion. They were faults in the way in which the model had developed, which can be put right. And the Swiss, in, in this respect, somewhat similar to ourselves, have, have, come to the, have come to the same view. So I'd like to see manufacturing expand more, but I do have to ask myself whether I think that up against competition from China and India 
and the newly industrialized uh, countries of the world, manufacturing has as good a future uh, for people in Western Europe um, as does um, services. The Germans, of course, are the great exception to that because they have been so good at developing world-class engineering products which carry not, which are not only very high quality but which are very high prestige. So that even if the Chinese could make a BMW, they might well prefer to drive a BMW uh, because it has the, the, the brand image. But other than that, I think we should rejoice in the fact that the developing world is developing and look for other ways of making money. Uh, excuse me, I've got quite a few other people stacking. Um, Michael. Thank you. Um, you've talked about various abuses within various organisations. So Sorry, can you hold it close to your uh, mouth? There? <laughs> yes. Uh, you've talked about abuses in various organisations, and some of these have been known for a long time. We've known for a long time about outright corruption and perjury in the police, for example, um, over Orgreave and Hillsborough. These, these are quite well-known cases. Um, Various financial organisations have flaunted the amount of money they've been making at our expense for a long time. Um, PPI, mis-selling and LIBOR have become better known, but um, they, they were known for quite some time. Is the failure one of transparency or one of democracy, of control? Uh, we've already heard mention of Waitrose, of John Lewis, which are very democratic organisations, very democratic, in, more democratic in fact than a university which is a slightly surprising statement to find. Um, how many of these abuses could be reined in or eliminated by bringing the organisations under some kind of democratic control, whether of their employees or their customers, rather than making them work for the benefit of their shareholders, who in practice have invested nothing in the company. They bought the shares from somebody else. The investment was made many years ago, so the interests of the shareholders are not the interests of society, are not the interests of the customers of the company, say a bank, and are not the interests of the staff. I do attach, as I indicated, very great importance. I do attach very great importance to transparency because I think that when things are out in the open, um, not just rules, but as it were proper procedures are more likely to be observed. I mean, what in my day used to be called the private eye test. I mean, you know, would you want to see this on, in private eye? And if the answer is you wouldn't, um, whether it's right or wrong, legal or illegal, uh, you ought probably not to do it. And if you're sure it's going to get into private eye, you, you actually probably won't do it. So I think transparency is very important. I think... An omission from my speech, and I, I think an omission when I was sort of reading it through at the end, is that I haven't said enough about shareholders. And I think there has been a dereliction of duty on the part of shareholders, and that shareholders have, um, have not fulfilled their fiduciary function um, as they should have, and indeed have often been cheerleaders um, for what has gone wrong. I mean, it, it's often forgotten that Fred Goodwin was cheered on uh, 
by the shareholders, also by Alex Salmon, actually, who said, do it for Scotland. Um, but um, but that's, <laughs> that's a different matter. But, but the shareholders were right behind him. Uh, the shareholders were right behind George Simpson when he brought Mark, uh, the old GEC, became Marconi, down. And, and I think shareholders have been, have been derelict. And again, I think the advantage of transparency is it is putting shareholders' feet um, to the fire. I don't accept, um, I don't accept that there is a, uh, a conflict, an ultimate conflict between shareholders on the one hand and, and customers and employees on the other. I do accept that under English law, we do give a priority to shareholders at the expense of others uh, that doesn't exist in, in all other jurisdictions. Um, but that is a matter of, of, of the law. But I think that the long-term interest of shareholders is the long-term viability and, and prosperity and what have you of, of, of the company, and that that will only be achieved if it can satisfy the, the customers, and that in turn uh, will bring jobs for, the, jobs for the workforce. And I think that when you look at mutuals, you mentioned Waitrose, which is a very impressive um, organization, very impressive indeed. Um, but, you know, not all mutuals have been quite as impressive as Waitrose, and I'm going to have to rack my brains now, but we have had some big collapses of, of mutuals. Um, we have had some big collapses of, of mutuals at one time or another, and certainly my impression when I was chairman of Abbey National, which was an ex-mutual, and which took over a number of mutuals, um, was that one of the problems in the mutuals was that because nobody was ultimately responsible for anybody, there was a certain laxness in management procedures um, that, uh, you know, that was, was less efficient than we would have wished and which didn't serve the interests of... Um, of their customers. I'm going to give the final question because I think we're running out of time to David Bellotti. Uh, thank you for an excellent lecture. Um, towards the end, you um, referred quite rightly to the year 2011 uh, and top pay increasing 10%, whilst the average uh, pay of the rest of the country was 1.5% or thereabouts. Um, but you did mention that, um, in a sense, to imply that um, there, uh, the attitude of um, the top people in the country and in business towards the living wage, uh, that there was a, a contradiction. Uh, and I just wanted to sort of ask you this question as we look forward. Um, everyone is really trying to grapple with the idea of growth. Uh, the problem with the living wage is it adds cost to business and is a mitigation against growth, whereas, of course, it is government policy to raise the tax hold a tax threshold for lower paid uh, to take it upwards and um, the minimum wage is 12,070 and if we could raise the tax hold threshold just a little bit above that we would get individuals with the same income without loading the costs onto business and I wondered if you could comment on that. I, I mean the point I was making was not about the living wage and indeed I said that, that there was a complex reality. The, the point I was making was that because 
the uh, total compensation of the leaders of great companies had risen by so very much over such a long period, it did then weaken their moral authority when they came to talk about issues like the living wage. I mean, the living wage is a complex issue, and, and it, we not only have to think of the people who are on that wage, but we also have to think of the position of small companies um, and, and employers who themselves are in great difficulties in, in paying increases. I mean, the whole question of minimum wages gives rise to all kinds of, of difficulties. But I, what I was querying was the problem of the leaders of industry losing moral authority. And that, that was the issue I was, I was focusing on. I, I would like you to join with me in thanking Lord Tugendhat for his lecture this evening and his responses to questions. I think that what we've seen is the benefit of experience at the highest level, not only in journalism, in politics, but in banking and in business. And we've seen an analysis which is vast in its contemporary historical sweep um, and cogent and coherent. And he's clearly a personal perspective and didn't duck away from being a little bit controversial. I bet B Sky B would like to know what was said here this evening. Um, but the truth of the matter is that it strikes me that we have allowed Christopher too few opportunities to share with us his experiences in his time here as Chancellor. And I'm, I'm really, really pleased that we've finally gotten around to giving him the sort of forum that we've given him this evening. I think he's taken a splendid opportunity here and given us the benefit of his wisdom. Will you join me with me in thanking him? Thank you very much.